Coming to you live from Holy Trinity Church in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, it's Ask Science Mike Live! Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. And as you know, in live episodes like this one, the questions are unscreened and the answers unrehearsed. So who knows where we'll end up this evening. We've got more events coming up on the Finding God in the Waves book tour in March. So I'd love to see you March 20th at Iris in Athens, Georgia, March 24th at the Blue Conference in Fairfax, Virginia, or March 29th at the Christ and Creation Conference with BioLogos in Houston, Texas. More events available at AskScienceMike.com. But for now, we've got a show to do, so let's get it started. So I'm also a fellow nerd, grew up watching Star Trek, all that stuff. Um, but I'm a music uh, teacher in the area, and I'm curious what your opinions are on, in this lovely educational environment in North Carolina, on how to keep the arts active in school and how to make sure that the, you know, we kind of teach the scientific method as well in the arts, teaching kids how to test theories and so how do we integrate those two, I guess? Mm. And also, my husband wants to know, well, who's your favorite Overwatch character? Overwatch? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, my favorite Overwatch character, that's a uh, video game from Blizzard. That's a shooter, team shooter. To play or, like, backstory-wise? Either. Probably to play Lucio. I'm a healer. Who would have thought? I'm a helper. And backstory-wise is probably, um, what's the robot turret's name? Bastion, yeah. Bastion, I really like, I dig Bastion's vibe. That was real inside baseball to start the show. Okay, <laughs> the question on, uh, on arts education. First of all, man, studies are really consistent that STEM is better when it's STEAM, right? So... We all understand that uh, engineering and math disciplines are really, really, really good at creating a lot of neurological activity in the left prefrontal cortex and a left bias focus in the brain. Now, you may have heard this popularized in the culture as the left brain is analytical and the right brain is creative. That's hogwash, according to neuroscientists I've talked to. The, The neuroscience perspective is that the left brain likes to take things apart and is reductive, and the right brain is holistic and likes to view things as systems, okay? So certainly, in technology and engineering and mathematics, there's a combination of reductive and holistic thinking, and in the arts, the same thing is true. But in terms of a bias, we find that overall, STEM without STEAM shifts to the left, and bringing in arts helps balance out our lived neurological experience in a way that improves test scores in non-artistic subjects. So that's an amazing case for why we should include arts. 
The problem is you ask, how do we preserve that? And that gets into like political policy. And if I've learned anything in the last few months, <laughs> it's that I don't know a lot about getting things to happen from a policy perspective. I've always kind of been a sidelines politics guy, and I went all in on keeping our current president out of office, and I failed miserably. Uh, so uh, I broke like my own protocols on behavior, trying to outright guilt podcast listeners into not voting for Donald Trump, and just, I mean, didn't work, and I got hate mail, so it was, it was a, a lose-lose. So... I think in general, we've been making some fundamentally poor assumptions about how education should work in America. Um, and I think that's true on both sides of the American political divide, because in America we are obsessed with accountability and uh, test scores and performance. And that works great in like corporate America, <laughs> like the GE model for rating highly aggressive alpha people who <laughs> went to the top of their class and now want to make millions of dollars every year. It's a decent model. Not as good for seven-year-olds, it turns out. <laughs> to, you're part of the bottom 10%, you don't get to continue school. Like that, that seems to be where we're headed. And I was reading, uh, a study about schools in Finland and how great they are. And the goal of Finnish education is not competition, but equality. And they have fundamentally different assumptions. So um, teachers' compensation isn't tied at all to performance or competition. They're actually paid really well, what a strange idea. Like, pay well the people who create the next generation of thinkers for your economy. Weird idea, terrible, terrible, don't do it. Um, and then they have a focus on um, empowering teachers to make decisions about uh, what's right for their students. And so they're like really autonomous. They're like, how do you handle a bad teacher? Principals make the decisions on hiring and firing for teachers pretty much unchallenged in Finland. Um, and, and that model, there is no standardized testing at all. And the school week is 20 hours a week. So they think it's really important if children play a lot. Now, why is that important? Because our study of child development is pretty clear. Like the best way children learn is play. So here's my problem. Like, the research isn't ambiguous. A well-rounded curriculum that includes play and the arts is great for human development, including in Western societies, right? So Finland is scoring um, on math and science and language similarly to the, like, high, brutal, Far East, like, Chinese school system or Singapore, where the, it's just, you know, all you got to study 19 hours a day and you'll be fine. Finland's doing just as well with 20 hours a week and no homework. That's like a, a slam dunk. The problem is in America, we don't make decisions based on data. Like, we just don't. Everything here is social identity and ideology. 
And I, I am learning more and more that's true of everyone, right? Like the, the big sin in America today is turn against the ideology of your tribe. And as long as we do that, we're doomed. Well, that was a, how do I dig my way out of this answer? I like to end somewhere hopeful. Let's see what works. Local activation. If arts matter to you, um, you think like you changed the world, you sent $20 because you felt the burn, right? Like I'm getting active politically, I contributed to Bernie's campaign, all right, making a difference. You want to swing elections? Contribute to the superintendent of schools. Your $20 will make a much bigger difference post-election when you pick up the phone, right? So for those of us who think engineering matters, arts matters, these are essential parts of curriculum, we need to get involved as parents and voters in our local school systems and push change there. If there's anything we're missing in America today is an obsession with winning the presidency and then the Congress. And if you want to change the country, win your city, then your county, in your state. You flip the model, right? What's California thinking right now about Trump? The whole state's just resist, right? They're all in. Why? Because they've been active at the local level. By the way, now I know the science mic crowd isn't 50-50, but it's probably 70-30. So we've got people from both sides of the divide here. Uh, the right has been way out executing local and state for 15 years, right? To huge success, huge success. So everything you want to change starts local, and that includes arts education. I like your comment about rankings because I was in the half in college that made the top half possible. So, my, my question is dealing more with faith. You mentioned this environment that we're in in this country. What suggestions do you have for helping us find ways to get through this through our faith? Because I think our country is in trouble. And one of the things that really can help is our faith. Yes. But right now, uh, I'm kind of struggling with that. Mm. Great, great question. Yeah. Um, I keep seeing the word civil war thrown around that has nothing to do with the Avengers. Really confusing me. Um, what amazes me about 2017 is it makes 2000... I was in Tallahassee, Florida in the year 2000 with hanging chads and the Supreme Court, and it seemed kumbaya compared to now. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, we're all just friends. Let's go to the Florida Supreme Court, but it, it's, it's bad now. It's bad. Um, so what do, we, what do we do now, and what does the church do now, especially because the church doesn't agree with what the church should do now. I like to do stuff like this. Go on Twitter 
Actually, get, go on your web browser, open two windows. In one window, I'm just gonna, I'm name dropping, I'm just doing it. Open Franklin Graham, right? In the next window, Richard Rohr. Just read the tweets. And realize that both of these guys represent a historic movement called Christianity. What? <laughs> what? Um, that's, that's quite a spectrum. So what's the temptation been always in the church? Well, that's not a Christian, right? We love to say they're not a Christian, but what do we hate when somebody goes, turns the air around, right? You're not a Christian. I never go, that person's not a Christian. I go, they're a terrible Christian. It's completely different. Uh, (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Like the one thing I always remember about the church is every Christian in the world, in all of history, is some other Christian's heretic. Except Jesus, because he wasn't a Christian. Um, and so that was a piece of cake for him. Nobody called him a heretic. There was no church. So how do we, how do we as the people of, of, of God do this? How, how do we love our neighbor? Here's what I realized the other day. You've heard me talk, if you've listened to this podcast, about the Good Samaritan as a response to the greatest two commandments a million times. And I always say... How if you wanted to have that story of resonance in America today, you might call it the good Muslim or the good undocumented immigrant, right? Some group that's despised, but we really have two Americas right now. And if you really want to make that land in this room, you call that parable the good Trump supporter or the good Clinton voter, right? Who is your neighbor? Your neighbor is the one who, when they see you, by the side of the road, bleeding out, they stop, and they help, and they say, they carry you to an inn, and they say, I'll be back a week later to take care of the bill. That's who Jesus calls the neighbor, and to invoke Samaritan to a Jewish audience is to invoke alt-right to the left today. That's radical stuff. So we start by saying, no matter what I think about you and your politics, I'm still for you, right? So I talk a lot about racial justice in America and just how statistically, provably awful we are at it. But I also talk about the economic plight of poor rural whites because they're in their own way on the side of the road. Now, it's not like a suffering Olympics. It's not what I'm doing. And the plight of of a rural white person doesn't justify them saying their suffering is at the expense of someone else who's marginalized and potentially more marginalized. Don't misunderstand, misquote me here. What I'm saying is the church response is to address all the suffering we see everywhere. And the moment you walk by and say, unclean, the parable is talking to you. 
Does that mean we don't have vigorous disagreement? Of course not. Go look at my Twitter. (laughs) I'm not silent on issues that I think are important at all. But if I find out someone I know who's a Trump supporter is in the hospital, I'm getting in my car and I'm driving to the hospital. You know what I mean? So, and I've thought about this. If if the people of Jesus can't agree to serve each other amidst disagreement, is there any hope left? And my gosh, people of Jesus, what a condemnation on us it will be if it's the secularists who model this. If that happens, there is no resurrection. Right? Like the proof of the empty tomb is our ability to be broken and poured out for others. We should be leading and not following the charge on serving each other and loving through disagreement. But I also don't mean that in terms of forced forgiveness or entering into relationships that are a source of continual abuse or trauma, right? You can love someone well and set boundaries on the relationship. So if you are gay and your family says your existence is an abomination, I'm not saying go sit at their house every Sunday and take it. You see what I mean? That is not what I'm saying. I'm saying acts of service towards the healing of the world start to bridge this divide. One hour standing together while someone dies will undo a lot of tweets, right? I mean, that's, that's why I'm a Christian. That's, that's it. That's the whole kit and caboodle. It's, I'm, a, I'm a good Samaritan, Matthew 25, that this is what I signed up for, that's what I'm here for, and I've been having this Paul renaissance. I can't believe it. Like, I came back to faith, and I was like, I'm totally on board with Christianity, but nothing Paul said, right? <laughs> like, I don't know how he got in the Bible. Uh, I think that's pro- we should probably just edit him back out. Um, but I've been on like a real Paul kick because Paul is a guy that grew up with one tradition of faith, saw a bright light, <laughs> left his childhood faith, and became a, just a zealot about a new way of thinking. And I thought, like, that sounds familiar. I don't know where I've heard that story, but it really resonates with me. And then Paul's like working out what that means publicly, which I can't identify with at all. And, <laughs> and so this, this idea in Paul filtering Matthew 25 into renewing your mind daily, like this is work to follow Jesus. It really, it doesn't come naturally. What comes naturally is to say unclean. That's the instinct. But the gospel is attending to the wounds of the broken, even if they're Samaritans or Trump supporters. 
Um, when you said you saw the bright light um, in the beginning of your speech, um, have you ever had anything like that happen when you were like younger? Was it? Did you ever like hear anything before? Maybe not such uh, as extreme. And uh, also, I'm gonna kind of do two questions, but it's like. This. I'll, I'll make an exception this once, sure. Okay. Um, and what kind of place were you in your life? Were you in a good spot? Were you just like having a hard time? Right. When yeah. you saw it. Mm-hmm. Okay. When I was seven, mom came in, said prayers like she did every night, and then went down the hall to say prayers with my sisters. And I felt God reaching out to me to let me know that I needed Jesus. And I felt like I was going to levitate off the mattress. The presence of God was so real and so powerful, I could hear God speak to me. And so I went to my mom and I was like, Mom, I need to meet Jesus now. And she said, I'll finish prayers with your sister and be right there. So (laughs) my mom's amazing. Um... (laughs) So then she comes in and say the sinner's prayer, and, uh, and then I uh, went to school the next day and told all the other second graders that I love them, all the boys and all the girls. I made a point of talking to every other member of my class at recess, and I got sent straight to the principal's office because uh, the kids were really uncomfortable, and I learned, okay, so you don't always say it. You just live it. But like that's been the theme of my life. From the moment I accepted Christ, like I felt God with me all the time. So I would talk to God every as a seven-year-old, every day, eight-year-old, nine-year-old, ten-year-old. God is my ever-present companion. God is what I love most, more than my parents. When I got married, more than my wife. When I had kids, more than my kids. And I would have experiences like that pretty often. Um, I remember I was in my 20s and a missionary came to our church to talk about the work he was doing in Guatemala and he got about two minutes in and I could barely stay in the chair. It literally felt like a cable was attached to my chest pulling me toward the stage the whole service. Doesn't that sound crazy? It sounds crazy to me. At the time I was like that's the spirit of God. Hallelujah I'm a Baptist. So um, which honestly, not really. That's almost more Pentecostal. Honestly, my SBC ilk are stri- strangely uncomfortable with displays of the supernatural. But, yeah. So, oh, uh, internet, I made a funny face. Okay, so they can't see what's happening. So I had those experiences all the time. Never to the intensity of the beach. I never heard an audible voice. God would always speak to me in my mind. That was the first time for that. There's a... Um, a gene called the God gene that is uh, way overhyped with that name. There's not like a gene that makes you believe in God, but there is a gene that controls the amount of a neurotransmitter you produce. And if you have a high expression of that gene, you produce a lot of it. And one neuroscientist I read said that's basically like walking around on a low dose of shrooms all the time. So you just see God everywhere, right? Like, and if you, they've done a, a, another study where they took uh, random blood samples from people who were and were not clergy, and they found this gene is overrepresented among clergy. So of course, they, they see God everywhere. 
So I suspect, by the way, if you're in a research institution that can do this test and want some free publicity, email me, because uh, I'd love to know if I have that gene or not. It's not just the genetic predisposition, it's also the practice. So the thing that probably encouraged me and encourages me to continue to have whoa God moments is the amount of time I spend in prayer and meditation. I spend at least 30 minutes a day, every day in prayer and meditation, sometimes four or five hours. I meditated for two hours this afternoon. Uh, research is pretty consistent that that increases your propensity to have sensory overrides or mystical experiences. Now, what if you have a really low expression of the God gene? You don't know that, but you're a person for whom these kind of experiences don't come easily. The practice of faith in corporate worship and prayer meditation will increase anyone's propensity. I ran a marathon. Look at me. Like, I am not a natural runner, but I ran a marathon. How? I would get out of bed at 3 o'clock in the morning on Saturday and run for seven or eight hours over and over and over, which gave me the endurance to finish a marathon incredibly slowly. But like the amazing thing was, you run that long, you get a 5,000, 6,000 calorie deficit for the day, you go to the Waffle House, order everything... (laughs) eat it, and you still have a 3,000-calorie deficit. It's amazing. So just do that with prayer. Um, yeah, so I, uh, I work at a pretty large church in the South. I'm not going to say the name because I don't want to get fired. Uh, do we need to modulate your yeah. voice? Uh, no, I think we'll be good. I work at uh, a pretty large church. But, uh, I recently just filled out my one-year staff evaluation where there was a good questions and comments uh, section on there where I brought up a bunch of issues about um, the uh, how our leadership at the church is mostly just white men of a similar background. And a lot of the uh, church is quiet and just deafening silence towards uh, racial injustice, refugee crisis, um, service to the community, those kinds of things, um, to the point where I get to have a conversation with uh, the leadership team this coming week. So I'm just wondering uh, what you would think is the best way to approach that conversation to where I know I would be heard by them and, uh, <laughs> uh, and sort of what is going on in the brain of of the people I'm going to have this conversation with and how I can come in a very disarming way and not put up walls between both of us. So, yeah. Yes, great. There's at least, if you're in a major church in the South that is conservative, there's a statistically significant chance that your pastor has emailed me and said, don't tell anybody. So never worry about, like, um, if you're from a major church, come on the show. These questions are becoming common. So people that really disagree with me are still like, wait, but I have a question I can't ask because I'm afraid people will get mad at me just for asking the question. This amazing thing happened. The civil rights movement in the 1960s fought segregation with the mission of achieving radical equality. And the main outcome, it seems, is that white people are now afraid to be called racists. That's like the, 
I've been thinking about this a lot. It seems like the biggest takeaway now is like KKK Grand Wizards or whatever they're called don't want to be called racists because there's such a stigma associated with the term, it shuts a conversation down. By the way, that's a sister uh, idea called white fragility. So if you uh, self-identify as white, as your race, if someone critiques behaviors common to white people or systems white people control, you take it from a systemic critique to a personal one and either get angry or guilty or sad or some combination of the three and shut down the conversation, right? Like if, if, if someone's trying to have a substantive discussion with you and you start to weep uncontrollably, A, that might be a good thing, but if you do that every time, it's kind of hard to talk about the issue. You know what I mean? Just imagine like your own home, if every time someone else asks you to take out the trash, you just went to pieces. You know what I mean? Like the trash has got to get taken out and we have to stop shooting black people in America. Right? Like both of these things have to happen. So I'm glad you asked that question because I think the burden for talking about racism to white people who don't want to admit racism exists primarily falls on white people who understand that racism exists. Because what happens if a person of color tries to have the conversation? They are angry, or they are belligerent, or they are divisive. Internet, you can't see the air quotes. I start by asking questions. Like, what do we believe about race as a church? Do we believe that all people are equal before God, before the law? What do you think is the reason our church is majority white? And the answer is so often, well, we're totally open if they want to come here. You know what I mean? That is the, that is the refrain 80% of the time, we would love to have more black people or more African-Americans or whatever, pick the group. We'd love to have more people here. And when that happens, there's an implicit assumption of white culture in the, in the institution, which means we would love for dark-skinned people to come here and act white, culturally white. That we'd be super comfortable, it would make great pictures on the church website, we would go home feeling good about ourselves because we would know that what? We aren't racist. So why do you think it is we're so open, but it's still like our whole congregation and our whole leadership is a you know, white husky drinking milk and a blizzard white? You know, like what is, what is making up this dynamic in our building? And as that kind of opens up, you continue to ask them for solutions. And eventually they say, well, what do you think? And you'd be like, what if we hired a person of color on staff? And like maybe not just like to make the copies, which would be fine, but like someone who at some point appears on stage during the worship service, and I don't know, maybe not exclusively playing music, right? Like, what if we just tried that? What would that do? 
Well, I'll tell you exactly what it does. What goes on the platform sends a message to a congregation. Full stop. Full stop. What if you recruited families of color to come be elders in your church and really listen to them? Now, this can get to a point that's super uncomfortable. They go, well, where would we find people like that? Which is when you discover that white social networks tend to be pretty white. And I don't just mean Facebook. I mean, like, in parts of the country, it can be a real challenge. It'd be mean, but you could, like, spring it on someone, name six people of color you know well. And, like, no authors, no movie stars, no musicians, right? It's very difficult. So if that's the case, maybe it's time, since everybody says we care about unity and no division in this country, what if we partnered with a local black church in a ministry and work together? And what if instead of colonizing their communities, we supported them in the work they're already doing? And what do you know? We start to create connections. We start to create understandings. And the great thing is, especially for a conservative church, black churches preach the gospel. They're going to love it. They're going to get excited about it. If they go visit one worship service, they're going to walk out saying, we've got to change everything, right? So it's creating these opportunities for connection and awareness. So could we get someone on staff? Could we look at what we do with our elders? And can we partner with other churches in town? Um, and that lived experience destroys all the preconceptions and all the rhetoric and all the objections. It's amazing when you get people together how we see we really are one body. Um, but the trick is going to be to avoid the colonizing attitude of partnering with another church and then trying to make that church be like us, but instead to take them on their terms Churches of color know more about reaching people of color than white churches, full stop. Full stop. They're the experts. If we're just going to hire the best people for the job, that's going to be people of color. Hey, I thought it was really insightful how you made the point about how we develop our decisions based on ideology rather than data. And that's something that I had an evangelical upbringing, and one of my biggest things was getting over the fear of certain questions and certain data. Now, a lot of the questions I was originally afraid of have gone away, say evolution or the age of the earth, those types of things that I used to actively avoid. I'm a physics grad student now, so I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with that type of science. On the other hand, I found that my fear has just gone to other types of questions. Um, you know, look at data related to gender differences in brains. And I don't want to look at that data at all because mm. it's something that I'm invested in and I have some fear attached to it. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm probably a lot of people have fear related to one area or another and they have trouble detaching themselves from, you know, looking at something 
objectively. And so I was wondering if you have any advice on areas where you might have fear, how you get over that. Thank you. Boy, that's a really good question. So we have a problem as a species. We have a crippling addiction that we're basically born with, and it is to certainty. We like to know that we know how the world works. We have significant neurological real estate devoted to making predictions about the future and creating a model of reality, and we have a significant emotional investment in knowing our model is right, and that's an evolutionary pressure. Because if you were making predictions about how much it will rain and you live in a flood zone, there's not like a big deal about a false positive. If you move the tent and it doesn't rain that much, no big deal. But false negatives tend to take you out of the gene pool permanently, right? So we tend to be trigger happy and jump to our decisions, especially if they're related to fear. And we don't like it when we figure out we were wrong about something we thought we knew about. This is why we get upset when people are close to change their behavior in some way, throw us a curveball. It's not as much as what they did, as much as the fact is we couldn't predict it, which means what? We're vulnerable. It's terrifying. So wherever you're at, you have some prevailing dogma in your life. Human brains are not instruments designed to seek truth. Human brains are instruments designed to seek survival, and a huge component of survival for a social mammal is social hierarchy. So when you call yourself a Christian, you now have an unconscious bias that filters out information that works against the label Christian. When you call yourself a liberal a conservative, an atheist, you know, an American Girl doll collector, whatever it is that you label yourself as, you start to take on assumptions common to that group, and you're very resistant through confirmation bias to being pushed out of that frame of thinking. So the first thing that's amazing for you is you're aware there are questions that you're afraid of, which puts you way up at the top of the class today. Um, because most people aren't aware of like their unaskable questions. I have found my solution to not being afraid of questions is realizing I am wrong all the time. It's just the normal mode of operation for me. I was a like 99.999% confident Southern Baptist that I completely understood God and how the world worked. Nope, wrong. So that was like, I learned. So I was only a 99.999% convinced atheist. Oops, right? So what I, I've been fundamentally wrong about my worldview twice in a row. So I've learned like maybe don't hold my worldview so closely. Maybe don't so jealously guard my knowledge and make an adventure out of figuring out things I'm wrong about. Um, it's one thing I love about this audience. The correction emails are frequent and well-cited. <laughs> um, 
So I was like, I think you're wrong. It was like, well, you cited these studies, and there are methodological flaws in two, and these six studies tried to, you know, I mean, it's just like really intense. And I love it. I just got smarter for free. (laughs) I didn't have to go look it up. It just showed up in my email box with clickable links. By the way, I am teaching you how to write me a critique email. You're now learning what a science might click on. Oh, cited with clickable links? He reads it. Okay. The other thing I did was a hack. I am certain in my uncertainty. I am certain I don't know how the world works and probably never will. And so I just dive into new questions that challenge my assumptions like a puppy that has to pee really bad. Like, this is going to be messy, but there'll be relief at the end, right? So I just came up with that, and I'll be honest, I think it's gold. So I have the same thing. Like, for a while, I didn't want to look at studies that involved gender or race-based differences because I was afraid of what I might find, which is being a little bit racist and chauvinist. Like, I can't even trust the data. And no study in the world is a final answer on anything. All they do is raise more questions. So even if you find differences between the genders, from where does that difference emerge? Almost always significant social economic factors involved. Uh, The other thing I like to think of in those kind of uh, bodies of data is they're wonderfully informative looking at things in the aggregate, but almost useless at projecting to the individual. That's what we have to remember about data and science. Even if we agree, there are some, if you create two categories called gender, and you can cleanly get most of the population into those two categories, and you test something like intelligence, you'll get two bell curves that have enormous overlap. Which means for any one individual making an assumption about some trait based on a statistical model isn't good science. It's just stereotyping. So I just lean into it. And the great thing about science, why it's my jam more than theology, no offense, theologians love you. Science doesn't actually claim to be ultimately authoritative. Science operates under the assumption that more data can tear this whole hypothesis apart. Even deeply held, like how excited, I know there's physicists in this room, and I know if they figured out the flaw in the standard model to sigma confidence significance, they'd be like, yeah, prevailing dogma going down, I'm getting a Nobel, right? Like, that's baked into, not to say science doesn't resist. Like, if you came out with that amazing paper and you had the evidence, people would still go, whoa, 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 we need a while to review this, which they should. Otherwise, science is just crackpots. But um, that's the fundamental model. And what I've noticed so often in Christianity and in religion in general, we fight over, like, whose interpretation is the one perfect one for all time. And in this case, I would love my friends of faith to learn my friends of science, the great joy of uncertainty that you have so beautifully demonstrated. Hey, Mike, thanks for being here. I grew up Methodist until I was in high school, 
and had, um, I was a science guy in high school, and all the prevailing religion was, you had to believe this, 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 and this, and I threw it out. So I was an atheist for 35 years. Oh, man, you beat me handily. Um, then I had a friend in high school. Um, I was teaching high school. There was a kid with muscular dystrophy who passed away. And I was at his funeral. And previous to that, all the funerals I had ever been to were God has a plan. He's in a better place. And I was just like shaking my head. Please don't. So for the first time, this pastor, it was a room full of kids saying, I don't have an answer. This sucks. This is hard. And in that moment, something clicked. I mean, I had been away from the church for 35 years. (laughs) And I guess part of the question is, is there something in us that craves something larger? Mm -hmm. And then very recently, I was at a church service and literally had not sung the doxology in probably 45 years. And I know the words, and when it started, I bawled. Mm. (laughs) I couldn't get the words out. (laughs) And I'm like, where is this coming from? I mean, I literally had been 45 years since I sung it, disregarded it for 35 of those, and now I'm a blubbering mess. Can you explain that? Yes. Okay, the University of Oxford Small School in England, you may have heard of it, um, tried to figure out why people believe in God. No big deal. Uh, so they did a, a decadal study, multiple cultures, multiple continents, to figure out what are the common threads for God. And they found like three principles. If you've listened to, I think I did this in Grand Haven, if you heard that episode. So if you want to hear the three, go back to Grand Haven because it'll burn too much time tonight. Is that cool? Or do I need to delay it? Okay, that's fine. Good. So there's three cognitive things that lead to a belief in God. Uh, Very briefly, people tend to believe in the afterlife, even if they're not religious. We tend to believe that there's an all-knowing entity because as infants we believe our mom is all-knowing, which is mostly correct to begin with. And we have a bias towards purpose-based explanations for a given phenomena. Those three things come together uh, to create a neurocognitive bias for God. So you don't have a God-shaped hole in your heart because you die because your heart pumps blood. But you do have a God-shaped set of neurological, neurocognitive biases. That's um, <laughs> real tweetable. Uh, so, yes, we have a longing right into the way human consciousness develops for some form of higher power that creates purpose and a promise of continued consciousness after death. Yep, done. Now, that doesn't say there is such a thing. It just says we desire it. You know what I mean? Like, I desire a pizza made of donuts, but I'm not saying it exists. Um, This crowd is obviously a skinny crowd. Fat kids would have eaten that up. So... uh, (laughs) Uh, So, when you become open, I've noticed faith at its best is not when you're like 
finding the answers. Faith at its best is when you realize you don't have them. Now what? That's the faith that like really amazes me. Like go try to pin a mystic down on theology and problems of suffering. And what do they say? Light a candle and sit in front of it. What? That's a dodge. Come on. Until you try it. And when you move into that kind of unknowing, contemplative faith, studies have shown there's a corresponding emotional vulnerability. They've also shown that you can take a intelligence absorption test, the absorption scale, and if you have an experience that's traumatic and respond with contemplative faith, you change your intelligence score, which specifically in men makes them warmer and more empathetic. So if you've had this experience where you've got to the end of your rope and just kind of let go to see what happens, it changes your emotional responses. I know this for a fact because I cry constantly. What did I cry about on the way here? On the plane this morning, I was watching a Netflix show because of my brain injury. I get sick if I read on planes, which is terrible. Um, And there was like a moment where a husband was glad to see his wife, and I bawled because I haven't eaten my wife in three whole days, right? And there's a constant vulnerability to me now. There's a, my emotions are just right there. And I don't mean like emotional outbursts. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like there's a joy in that kind of sentimentality. And there's a beauty. I used to love to watch action movies where like the guy comes down on the rope and lands with the superhero like this and then just kills all the bad guys and now I can't watch it because what if the bad guys have kids? What if they had dreams? What if they were living out of some result of trauma and they didn't fire the first shot anyway? The good guy literally came in guns blazing and I'll cry at action movies. Because it makes me think of the human condition and our predilection to solve things with violence. Um, And I've just decided I like that about me. I'm all in on that. I tweeted the other day, I cry a lot. And that wasn't a confession. That was a humble brag. Uh, (laughs) Because I think the world is better when men kick off the bondage of forced masculinity and just be authentic, real people, right? How much of the world's problems are because guys are trying to act tough in front of each other, and girls aren't impressed anyway, so even if you're, like, <laughs> hetero, that's a bad reproductive strategy. Like, the amazing thing is, the studies also show women generally respond better to men with higher telogen absorption scores, like, set down the football, grab a book and a cardigan, and let's fix the species. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, you've, you have been open to the beautiful mystery that is another breath that you don't know where it comes from, and that gratitude has to go somewhere, and it's okay for a skeptic to decide that place 
is God, even in the absence of empirical data to support a celestial being. Hey, okay, so mine's like a sci-fi question. Okay. Um, this is becoming less fictitious. So it's about neural icing. Um, if you don't know what that is, it's where they... Did like, you say com- neural icing? Lacing. Lacing. Okay, I was so like, that's real weird. Computer interface woven into the brain. Yes. Okay, so they did a study in 2015 with mice, mm-hmm. and they found that their brain was able to um, grow around the, the lace. Yes. And um, Elon Musk said he's making more headway on this. Mm-hmm. So what do you think that means for like humanity? Do, do you think that gives more control um, to the machines or to the man? And um, do you think that's going to do something to religion, good or bad, and uh, morality and humanity in general? This one's getting broad. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so we're getting an increased capacity to directly connect computers to our brains. Um, around 2015, I saw another study where they attached a machine brain interface to a man and to a rat, and the man could think and move the rat's tail. Oh, man. Look at the no. Just no. (laughs) No, that didn't happen, Science Mike. It's real. So, uh, um, you know, I'm sure you've seen the remote control cockroaches. Like, well, it's really cheaper. Like, how do we build small robots that crawl really well that don't use a lot of energy? Oh, wait, nature did. They're called cockroaches. So we just connect interfaces to their brains and take control of their bodies, which I think is totes ethical and not troubling at all. Uh, <laughs> like, I literally picture Ian Malcolm in Jurassic Park as I imagine a swarm of, like, military cockroaches accidentally destroying a city. And he's like, your scientists thought so much about if they could. They didn't stop to think if they should, right? Um, so what's that going to do? Well, the, well, you're tempted to say, well, we make computers. So they're just going to do whatever we say. How's that working with Facebook? There's this um, cognitive bias we have called the availability cascade. Have you heard of this? The more often you hear something, the more true you believe it to be. Ouch. So now we have cloud computers whose job is to figure out what we like to hear and tell us over and over so they can sell us ad impressions. We'll actually technically sell companies ad impressions aimed at our eyeballs. And what has this done? Where's all this polarization coming from? We live in literally individually tailored media environments that tell us what we want to hear over and over, so we believe it more readily. I've been preaching this like crazy. People on the left get all excited. Look at that, man. Conservatives, 40% of them are likely to fall for fake news. Only 20% of liberals are. One in five is terrible. That's not like bragging, you know what I mean? Give me a break. Like you're... You're not going, like, top of the class with 80%. So um, this is a huge problem, and the computers are still outside of our brains. I have a VR headset. I have two VR headsets because I'm real nerdy. Um, And I'll be using VR, and, like, a lot of games where you're building things, like, you don't, gravity is selective, so if you're, like, working with a tool, 
You can just like let it go and it just stays there until you need it and you grab it again. And so I took my VR headset off and set the controllers down and picked up my coffee mug and drank of it and just let it go. <laughs> and it fell on the ground. And I was like, what's happening? Because my brain got used to what? It was so convincing, the sensory information from goggles sitting on my face, that my brain made VR just R. And I just assumed it would continue, you know what I mean? Um, there's another bad habit I have. Like, I love in VR, you can walk up to the edge of a cliff and then like walk off of it and just float. Because the floor is still there. I'm going to die that way one day. I'm going to the Grand Canyon and be like, girls, check this out. <laughs> so what do you do when instead of typing Google, you just think, what's the sun's mass in grams? And you just know. By the way, ask Alexa, what is the sun's mass in grams? It's amazing. She talks for like two minutes. Um, <laughs> what do you do when... You can look at a person's face and see how many friends they have. We are already judgy. You see someone, you're like, 26 friends talking to you. You know what I mean? And then what would happen to me with like 20,000 followers on Twitter? Do people start mobbing me? I hope not. Like how weird would that up in the social hierarchy? Look at me. Uh, I think cognitive science one of the most important disciplines right now. We've got to have a better mechanistic understanding of how signals and inputs affect human consciousness to be able to understand what continuing to reduce the distance between virtual digital information and our consciousness will do. I uh, read a fascinating piece the other day about the linkage between 4chan and the alt-right. As someone who spent a lot of time on 4chan, I gotta be honest, I saw that train coming. What happens when you have self-reinforcing nihilism and a celebration of anything that destroys the system regardless of outcome just because you're, you seethe in hatred at the system itself? I'll go ahead, and I don't make a lot of absolutes, but I'm gonna say we can go ahead and assume any community that celebrates the posting of dead bodies, including children, for fun or the lulls, is going somewhere dark, right? That's not going to lead to a greater empathy for other people and a thirst for justice if you're like, ha, ha, that's the corpse of a dead child. And that's with it still outside of our brains. I don't mean to be alarmist, but we are just starting to taste what a global light-speed communications network is going to do to this species. And I think we should, we should think very carefully before we pipe it into our brains. Because the moment someone does, it's an incredible survival advantage and everyone else is going to want to. Right? It's already like, if you're not on Twitter or Facebook, if you're like a job application, they're like, yeah, what are your social media profiles? You're like, I don't have them. They're like, not even LinkedIn? you build bombs in your basement? You know, I mean, there's a, so what happens when you're the only person in the room that can't just know how many widgets were sold this quarter by thinking about it or how close we are to quote it? If someone has to like send you an email, what are you, a primitive? This is going to be huge implications in our society. Now, what does that mean for faith? 
it could become technically possible to build a unity of human consciousness, transcend the limitations and the boundaries of self into something more collective, I think that could have profound consequences for faith and theology and belief. If it becomes difficult to tell. So what if, what if instead of just, so for a while we were amazed, I'm old, my wife could send me like a message, it would just appear on my phone like magic, called texting. Um, and then we got these Apple Watches and she could send me her heartbeat and I can literally like feel her heartbeat on my wrist, which is weird if you think about it, but just don't think about it too much. What happens if instead of sending a smiley, you can send a snapshot of your feelings and a person for a moment can just feel what you feel? It's not your feeling, but if the person's really sad and they blast you with sadness, you can feel sad for hours. Where do you end? Where do they begin? Huge faith implications. I don't have the answers. I just say proceed with caution. Hey, thank you for being here in North Carolina. We really need you. Um, this, yeah, we do. Um, I live in Florida. So. Yeah, I know. I know. It's just this is actually it's a two-part question. Okay. Um, part of it is a parenting question. Okay. Uh, and part of it is also about individuals that have very high IQs. So uh, we have a nine-year-old son who tested in the 98th percentile for his IQ at the age of six. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he basically is two different ages. So he's functioning at one age, but his life experience is at another. He's mm-hmm. nine years old right now. Um, but at the age of seven, he was asking questions like, what if this is all a dream and what if there is no God and, and all of that. So we, we are now at a point um, as husband and wife where, you know, uh, my husband has been deconstructing his faith. And he basically sounds exactly like you except with medical stuff instead of your science. Um, and he's very much so holding things with, with an open hand. Um, and I'm kind of on my own journey right now. He very much so is a black and white kind of kid. Uh, we think he's an eight on the Enneagram uh, as well. He's been asking why, 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 pushes back on everything. Um, but like I said, he's also functioning at a really high level. So we want to be there for him and support him. Mm-hmm. And he... he so desires certainty and security and stability. Um, he's so sensitive to anything. He couldn't watch Disney movies because anything evil or bad was just too much for him. He'd feel it too mm-hmm. much. And so basically the question is, do you know anything about people who have really high IQs, like maybe what they were like when they were kids or what their parents did right? Any suggestions in this day and age and living in a small town where boys play football, girls wear dresses, and, you know, our son has some streaks of pink in his hair and he likes earrings and, you know, all these different things. Um, We really support him in that, but the community that we're in, not so much. Mm. Great question. 
I wouldn't know anything about being a young boy who doesn't like football. Um, my dad would throw football, throw a football at me. I don't even know how to like conjugate football. <laughs> and I would squeal and duck and cover my body because footballs are sharp and they hurt. And boy, I was popular at school <laughs> in Tallahassee, Florida, home of the Seminoles. I, I, is there like an adjective before Seminoles? I don't know. Like, well, great, the great Florida Seminoles. Um, right now, people in my hometown are like, oh, Mike, this one thing. It's fine to be an atheist. I get it, but no football. Um, things are better than when I was a kid, I've noticed. There's, even in rural America, there's more openness. We seem to be making a little bit of a relapse since about November. Um, I don't know what the cause there is, but a um, couple things. One, this is key, kids don't have Enneagram numbers, right? Enneagram, by its total pseudoscientific admission, is how your adult self deals with your childhood so your, your, your child's still forming their Enneagram number. Um, so be careful with Enneagram projecting that onto your kids because guess what your kids in many ways become, what they hear you talk about them becoming. That's why the words we use about our children are important. I don't just tell my girls that they're beautiful or smart. I say that they're hardworking, that they struggle well, that they know how to talk to me when they suffer. See what I'm saying? They use that language to reinforce it. Um, biggest picture you can take in parenting as someone whose kids aren't out of the house yet, so I could be way off. Like, you might want to wait a few years to see if my kids, like, end up in prison or something. But right now, it seems to me the biggest thing you can be aware is that you will screw it up. And they will talk about you in therapy, and it's a given. It's a base assumption you are not the perfect parent because there's no such thing. And if you're a great parent with one of your kids, they do this frustrating thing where they're individuals and you might struggle with a different child and it's not your fault or the child's fault. It might be a personality conflict between a genetic originator and a genetic replica, right? It's amazing. So... The thing we do horribly in America is set crazy expectations on ourselves that our job is to create an environment for an unscarred, flawless human being to live up to their full potential in the world. We as a species are wired for struggle. We are great at it. You know what I mean? In your lineage are animals that ate their young. You're already way ahead of your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather if you don't eat your children. More recently in your evolutionary history, if babies didn't look quite right or were too loud or not loud enough, we left them on the savanna, right? 
holy cow, are you a good parent? So what do you need? Does your children know you love them? Do you reinforce that often? Do you encourage them? Do you apologize when you realize you messed up? Do you set some boundaries and expectations? And are you open to discussions about those boundaries and expectations as they get old enough to do so? Oh, and by the way, young children are fundamentalists developmentally. We don't, they don't do nuance yet. Even brilliant young children don't do nuance. They don't do shades of gray. They do right and they do wrong. When my seven-year-old told our nine-year-old that there was a literal hell, and if she didn't believe that, she might end up there, I didn't panic because seven-year-olds are fundies. <laughs> it's just how it goes. As they need to know, there's a God with a face, makes decisions, there's consistent rules, I know what's required of me, and what's not. Great. So my nine-year-old dad, Macy, said, don't worry about Macy, she's a fundamentalist. (laughs) What do we do? Wait. Wait. Her brain's going to mature. She lives in Science Mike's house. She's going to ask questions about her faith. It's just going to happen. So, and it did. It did. Just trust. Like the biggest thing, just let's lower the stress. Let's celebrate the limited years we have with these amazing people in our homes. You know what I mean? What, like... I structure my life in a way that when I'm home, I sit down in our kitchen every morning and we have breakfast together and we talk about our day and we're goofy and I spill food on accident and the dogs eat it and mom pretends to get angry and uh, (laughs) mom says she has three children and (laughs) she's, she's just kidding just like me and We just celebrate living together. And then they go to school. I, I try to drop them off when I'm in town. Then I go pick them up, and I'm like, how was your day? What was hard today? What made you laugh today? And way later, we might talk about, like, school. We sit down, we do homework together, and if we can't figure it out, we go on YouTube together. And we go on Wikipedia together. And I not only teach them how to do the problem, I teach them what to do if you don't know how to solve a problem. Understanding that like my influence on these people is pretty limited. Madison's 12. Um, it seems like as she's getting a little bit older, she's losing muscle tone in her ocular muscles because her eyes keep rolling around when I say things. <laughs> So I'm aware that there's like this golden window that's closing, and pretty soon it'll be a miracle if we're all home and there's no yelling, and I'm going to be fine with that just because we're all home. You know what I mean? So I don't worry about like teaching them how to do it right. I worry about teaching them to struggle well. Now, at the same time, you have this other thing, you're in this community where people 
are maybe excessively judgmental. On the one hand, some of that exposure is important. You know what I mean? Like the mean teacher is a great preparation program for the mean boss they will have. You know what I mean? Learning, like, how do I deal with a teacher that I think hates me? <laughs> oh, you need that life skill. That's more important than arithmetic, right? Um, but if there's, a, like, a pervasive systemic issue, change of environment might be the only answer. But I say that, and, like, what if my parents left Tallahassee and I didn't get beat up all the time and I had friends earlier in life? I literally wouldn't be me. My capacity to stand on stages four or five nights a week and then do meet and greet for three or four hours, I mean, all my friends who do this for a living are like, why do you do that? Because I am so moved by your life experiences and your suffering and your pain because I understand it because kids used to stand on my head and stomp. You know what I mean? There, I cannot exist as me today without those experiences. Would I care so much about racial equality if black kids didn't protect me from white bullies? I needed both of those experiences. So in a very real way, the worst things in my life that I talk about the most in therapy are the things that defined who I am. And the reason I'm who I am is because even though all those kids were horrible to me, I never doubted for two seconds both of my parents loved me and were 100% behind me. And I almost called my mom while you were asking her a question to hold the phone up to the little microphone here because she would answer this question so much better. I'm not high IQ, but I am weird. And... If your son knows you love him, that's going to fix everything else. And the people that really carry scars, and I know they talk to me and they send emails into this program, are the people who wonder if their parents loved them. That's the scar that doesn't heal. That's the wound that never stops bleeding. And those are the people who can never believe God loves them. So what do you do to be a great parent? Love your kids and let them know with words and with actions. Hey, uh, so first of all, I just want to thank you for your work and uh, for the liturgist and Michael Gunger, and uh, you have been influential in many ways, and I just want to thank you for that. Um, so I am a two on the Enneagram uh, I want to start there because that plays into this. Uh, since, okay, so about up until about a year and a half ago, I was in this nice little conservative bubble that I liked and okay. didn't really know much. And I was fine with that. And then about a year and a half ago uh, with the uh, election and uh, primaries and everything, I had this huge shift in my life and uh, I became a feel the burn girl. <laughs> and started reading a lot of articles and educating myself about what's actually happening in this country. So since November, it has been rough. Uh, and I think for uh, a lot of people, including a lot of listeners, um, 
and I've heard you speak to taking time to grieve uh, throughout the process. Uh, and I feel like I'm trying to do that, but it's everywhere. I mean, I can't separate myself 100% from, uh, from hearing something that's going on that day uh, with the president or the cabinet or Congress, anything. Um, and I, I don't know how to, to fully grieve that and then take that into uh, advocacy work mm-hmm. and uh, having grown up in a conservative bubble and not ever really doing that in my life, uh, my, my biggest question now is how do I begin a work in advocacy? Yes. Um, whether it be with LGBT or mm-hmm. with women's rights or uh, environmental protection or any of that, where do I start to do that? Fantastic question. There's no expiration date on grief. It's a cycle. It's a process. It ebbs and flows. My grief has been greatly helped by implementing a couple of practices. I tightly cap the amount of time I spend on social media per day. And I typically do it in one sitting. So if I'm going to spend 15 minutes on Twitter, I do all 15 minutes at once and not three five-minute sessions or 15 one-minute sessions. And let's be honest, who's going to spend one minute on Twitter, right? So same thing with Facebook, although avoiding Facebook is really easy. I hate it. I only consume the news once per day. I turn off all the breaking alerts and email alerts. Nothing can happen that'll make a difference if I don't know till tomorrow, unless it's like nuclear missiles inbound. And then I don't want to know. I just want to vaporize. I don't want to like flee for shelter and maybe get outside the blast zone and then be one of the people struggling to survive a nuclear winter. No. I want to disappear in a puff of smoke, right? Maybe I'll just think it was the rapture. Um, So, sorry. I knew that would get a laugh and some people would be uncomfortable, but I always go for the laugh. Um, so I just, I limit the inflow. That's not to say, no, 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 nothing's happening. Not what I'm talking about. I'm saying I'm trying to set, put myself in an emotional position to effectively participate in change. So I only read the news once a day, but I pretty much call all my congressional representatives every day to weigh in on what's happening and uh, I do I write a lot of letters like have you, have you heard of this like it's like an email but you print it and then you sign it and you put it in an envelope and put a stamp on it and mail it and uh, all those get opened and tallied all of them all of them basically the harder it is to do something the more a politician pays attention to it, right? And then I like kind of pick the things I'm working on. So I'll like throw my weight behind pretty much anything for a moment, but there's some issues I'm engaged in on an ongoing basis where I'm a member of organizations with smart people who are organizing that will say, do this at 3 p.m. on Thursday. And that way we, we shut down this switchboard of these Congress people who might swing on this vote. And that's effective, right? Um, but in general, you figure out the things that you are compelled the most in terms of suffering and injustice. 
and then you find out the people who are already doing that work and help them. If you're white and you care about racism, maybe like the most helpful thing is to not go cry in a Black Lives Matter organizing meeting, right? Because they're like making real plans to do real work. But joining Surge might be really showing up for racial justice. It's basically like white folks trying to figure out how to not be in the way while helping. Um, and I don't mean that like in a demeaning way. I think that's important and beautiful. So whatever those issues are, get plugged into groups already doing the work and study under them for a while. And then as you learn the work, you might see like where you have a fresh perspective or something new to offer or not. It might just be that you're good at helping move that forward. Google's a, a good resource for learning the ideas behind it, but I've typically found when it comes to participating in action, getting involved with some civic group or organization or advocacy group will radically amplify the benefit of your efforts. I think there's surge nearby here. I'm a donor to the Gay Christian Network because they're doing important work and I try to amplify whatever work they're doing and you, you just find the people and it at first, so I get it, at first you're like, I literally don't know who's doing this at all. Um, some Googling, some tweeting, asking friends, you'll, you'll eventually connect with people. By the way, one thing we're trying to do on the Liturgist podcast is the people we have on the show are the people doing that work. And so if we say, and how would people get in touch with you? And they say a website, go to that website and you'll get like way farther ahead in 10 minutes than you would have otherwise. Um, so what we're trying to do now on that show is not only make people aware of an issue, but also give them an on-ramp to participating. That's the reason we did the Black and White show, episode 34 of the Literature Podcast. Huge reading list at the end, right? That was on purpose, because we didn't want to like get a million people all fired up who then went and bugged their black friends, like, what do I do now? Trying to like <laughs> create some self-service. Um, but you can't do any of that if you don't take care of yourself. We've got an episode coming out on advocacy with Christina Cleland and Mickey Scott Bay Jones. And listen to what they both have to say about self-care. Because um, they, they do justice work vocationally at a greater personal cost than I'll ever know. And so their words on self-care will be far more illuminating than anything I could say. First, uh, thank you for being here. And... Um, also, I'm involved on campus with an adoption community and education group, and many of the people in the group, myself included, have a very unique relationship with their father, whether or not they know their biological father. And thanks to Richard Rohr, Richard Rohr I'm very much a Trinity nerd, but I've always had a problem with the father part of the Trinity mm -hmm. growing up and still do, and many mm -hmm. people I know also have that sort of problem. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you have any tips for people who've always struggled with a relationship with God because of that, mm -hmm. and have liked the idea of the Trinity, but have had difficulties, whether or not they were adopted just because they have a unique relationship with their earthly father? Amazing question. Absolutely stellar. Um, I find it's helpful to start by having an informed historical understanding of Christian theology church history, 
and the cultural context in which scriptures were written. The Bible written over a 1,500-year period starting 3,500 years ago. Patriarchy the norm in all those cultures throughout the biblical arc. So to talk about the origin and ruler of all, you need a paternal image to resonate with that culture. Now, when we think about creation, we tend to think feminine, which is why the Bible actually uses pretty generous feminine imagery for God often. But I don't think the Bible ever actually calls God mother. But I do. Don Miller, like one of my favorite quotes of his, is about God the Father and people who are really adamant about it. He's like, so you're telling me God has a penis. Like when you think God, that's what comes to mind. You know, I just love like how visceral that is because it's, it's ridiculous. Like in Trinitarian theology, the Godhead, the source of all creation, the sustainer of all creation, gender's a weird construct to put on God. It's a really weird thing, but we need what? We need sometimes God to have a face for us to understand it so people used a metaphor that helped them connect with God. And I think mother's an equally valid pointer to the mystery of the divine as father. I think for some people it's more appropriate than father. By the way, that's why we did a liturgy called God Our Mother with the liturgists, which was universally positive in conservative churches. Um, The people (laughs) loved it. No hate mail at all from God Our Mother. I tend to not say he or her with God. If you listen carefully and also say, um, God is doing things for God's self. I kind of like bypass the gender of, of the father or the mother or the, the Godhead altogether. Um, not only because it's, I think, theologically beautiful, I think when we invoke the word father, we inevitably tie someone's understanding of God to their own father. My father cheated on my mother, and I became an atheist. And I didn't even catch it. I didn't. I thought I went on this like incredibly cerebral, intellectual journey through deconstruction. But my father failed, and I became an atheist. So I think, I think yeah, it's, it's a fine training wheel. I think God the Father is perfectly good training wheels. I'm not saying we have to tear the training wheels off for everybody. I'm saying some people don't need training wheels to stay on the bike. And I realize, like, also at the same time, that's an incredibly unorthodox idea. I don't know what percentage of denominations that's heresy in. Probably 85 or more, but that's okay. I care about people knowing and encountering God, of, of experiencing a depth of beauty they've never imagined, and seeing life itself as a beautiful, mysterious, and fleeting gift. And if the word Father gets in the way of that, toss it. 
Hi, Mike. Hi. My name's Doug. I'm an Enneagram 4. I can tell already. So I, I, I have... <laughs> yes. I, I have a very robust fantasy life. And I have since I was a child. Uh-huh. And I've kept, kept uh, from ever sharing really to many people how robust that fantasy life has been throughout my whole life. Uh, just because I've never heard anybody else say something that is like, oh, you must experience life like I do. Uh, case in point, ever since I was a little kid, before I was 10 years old, I would uh, lay on top of my sheets and I would imagine, I've, I've called it uh, forceful, lucid daydreaming, uh-huh. uh, before I fall asleep. <laughs> Believe me, I totally know what you mean. And, and I'd have to put my, my, my knuckles from right here onto this area of my head, like my frontal cortex or whatever it is, and uh, try to activate it. You're just your it. forehead. Or, if or you put like, your knuckles on your frontal yeah. cortex, you'd die. But yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my forehead, my forehead. My, uh, yeah. uh, so anyway, so I, what, I would have to be on top of my sheets because I would sweat. My whole body would sweat because of what my brain was doing. But I don't know what I've been doing my whole life. Now I'm a musician. I tie that in with like imagining uh, songs before I make them and mm-hmm. jam to them. Yep. These I- ideas in my mind. So I'm just wondering. I, I, as a little kid, I was wondering if I was hurting myself by like burning out brain cells or something. But I just, when you went to get a CAT scan with your mystical experience as an atheist. Yes. Uh, that's awesome. Who do I go to or what neurological like, expert do I have to seek out, uh, you know, this unexplored territory? Okay. Yeah, I don't think you have a brain tumor, so don't worry about the CAT scan. I mean, I'm not a doctor, so you might have a brain tumor, but it's not because you have vivid daydreams. And if it was, if you had a brain tumor that long, I mean, you're dead by now anyway, so we can kind of rule that out. It's brute force diagnostics. Do you know, like, how... People ask all the time, like, how, are you, how do you answer so many questions, like, reasonably well? Because I have imagined walking around on stage answering questions since I was, like, six. I've been rehearsing for this my whole life in vivid imagination and visualization that's happening uh, largely due to the work of your orbitofrontal cortex, among other things, it makes ethical decisions and calculations by thinking about the consequences for potential decisions, but it also powers daydreaming. And humans spend one-third of their waking hours daydreaming on average, one-third. At any given moment tonight, a third of the room has been daydreaming. Busted, I just pulled you out. (laughs) It won't last long. That's normal. Now, some people dream more vividly. We get made fun of at school, but then later we make films and movies and podcasts, and people buy tickets to see us, so it's not all bad. I don't think you need a neurologist. I think you need to celebrate your gift and not be self-conscious about it, and I think you're not burning out your brain. Research would tell us that you are generating connections between neurons on an ongoing basis, and your association cortices are probably ripped. You know what I mean? I mean, it's more up here, but you can't flex your skull. I mean, you can flex your skull, but it's really bad for you. Um, Oh, I'm serious. It is. You don't want to increase intracranial pressure. So, yeah, like that's, 
That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Celebrate it. Um, there's a lot of people that will like tell you we can hook you up to a brain scanner and in real time. Kind of, no, those people are generally not correct about that. The, the studies aren't encouraging. The studies are encouraging on creativity and dreamers, though. Watch out for signs of depression, though. Yeah, creative people um, tend to, if they get depressed, get really depressed. And they excel at not only being depressed, but having creative thoughts of suicide. So um, if that ever becomes part of your journey, don't wait. Ask for help fast. Um, Mike, I really liked uh, the point that you made about prayer and meditation, or at least the science that you attributed to it and the way that we grow. Um, Specifically, I'm curious about uh, healing prayer. Um, Just a quick context. Um, I had no interest in healing prayer, and really I kind of judged anybody that believed in it. Uh, and then out of nowhere, I started studying John Wimber and was really mad at myself for studying him. He was a fuller professor that believed in healing prayer, um, for about a year. And then we found he out, believed in healing prayer for about a year or you no, read him for about a year. I was studying him for about a year. Okay, cool. Yeah. I was like, uh, that's not that impressive a testimony. Anyway, right, sorry, go ahead. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so anyway, really, really quick wrap up, um, about 11 months into it, we found out that um, my son, uh, in his second trimester, uh, developed a gap between his kidneys and his urethra, yes. which, as you know, set off a tra- chain reaction over the rest of the pregnancy, and he developed fine, but then passed away about four hours after he was born. And so after discovering healing prayer, I had a reason to pray for the first time in my life, and God chose not to heal my son. And so I just kind of got put in a really strange place where I was waiting for bitterness to set in, but it never did, and I'm just kind of existential about it now. And I'm just curious what you think about it, both scientifically and personally. Okay. I hate to do this to such a heartfelt question. Uh, I have a whole chapter on prayer and finding God in the waves and dig deep into intercessory prayer versus other types of prayer in the science. So I'm still going to answer your question, but I want to let you know and people listening all across the internet uh, that there is a deeper resource available uh, available bookstores everywhere. So you just outlined the problem with healing prayer. The phrase, God chose not. And when People believe in intercessory healing prayer and they get a God chose not how often that results in their faith becoming shipwrecked and destroyed. Very common. My email inbox, probably 40% of my former Christian current atheist friends who email me, it's because of a God chose not. I was a huge, intercessory prayer was the foundation of my faith and then i read the god delusion and richard dawkins had a challenge pray to a jug of milk the way you pray for god that's ridiculous richard dawkins but he said if you say god can answer prayers with yes no or wait you have covered every possible outcome 
There's no other option to a question other than yes, no, and wait. So I tried it. I asked my milk jug for two weeks for a promotion, and I got the promotion. So I never threw out that milk. And (laughs) no, obviously I threw the milk. I think I drank the milk. But my point is, milk chose to give me the promotion. My whole family got together and prayed for my grandmother to be healed from cancer, and she was. They said she had six months, and she went back for x-rays, and they said the tumors were all gone, and Meemaw was with us for several years, and then the tumors came back, and they took her. Scientists would say some percentage of ailments are going to recover, even the ones that seem hopeless. When we've studied healing prayer scientifically, which we haven't done as much as you would think, we tend to see this. People who know they're being prayed for get better a little less often than people who aren't being prayed for or people who are being prayed for but don't know it. That's the, that's the statistic when you do large-scale analysis. This stuff is tough to control. There's a lot of variables. Uh, people in bad physical health tend to not want to be completely cut off from friends and family. And how do you talk to every friend and every family and say, okay, don't pray for this person? That's impossible, right? So let's admit there's some limitations in the methodology. So I got to the point where I'm like, intercessory prayer is not a thing. God doesn't respond to prayers, period. The point of prayer is for us to be connected to God and transformed by it. It became contemplative. And you'll find many people, the other alternative to shipwreck faith after God chose not is a contemplative faith where they rest in a trust in God. Beautiful. And in my case, total hypocrisy. Because when my dad had a stroke, and they said, come now, we're not sure how long he'll survive, he's half paralyzed. When I got in the car, I prayed. And I prayed for a miracle. And I prayed that God would keep dad long enough that I could tell him I loved him again. And when I walked into that hospital room, and my dad, like the football-playing former military superman of a human, is lying in bed with half of his face etched in pain and the other half completely slack. I held my dad's hand, and I went to my knees in a hospital room, and I wept, and I prayed, and it wasn't centering. It was begging So obviously, I resolved the philosophical contradiction of intercessory prayer before I did so. No. That prayer was an admission of my powerlessness and my hopelessness, but also of my hope and a search for my power. What can I do in this room for my dad? It mainly consisted of 
constantly changing washcloths off his head into a bucket of ice and water because he had this horrible headache because half his brain was dying. And the cold water helped a little bit. I told you I like cry all the time. Is the answer to write off intercessory prayer and healing prayer? It makes a lot of sense to me philosophically. I'm real bad at it. I keep praying for peace in our land. I keep asking God that black teenagers aren't killed in this country. I keep asking God that gay teens not feel like killing themselves would be left suffering. I beg from God often, even as my mornings begin in contemplation. I am convinced that God is the worst jigsaw puzzle in the world. He's the worst riddle. Look at me. I talk intercessory prayer, start saying him because I go old school. (laughs) That God is a horrible equation, but that God is our companion on the journey through life. That God is the path that we walk on itself. That God is never farther than our next synaptic firing and never any less grand than the cosmos itself. And if in my tiny, fleeting, havel vapor of an existence, if sometimes the only way I can cope with the cost of the gift of awareness and consciousness and life and beauty is to get on my knees before the grandeur and intimacy of the divine and beg, then I too am grateful for those moments, even if the philosophical implications are unclear because they open my eyes to the reality of love and beauty that animate every moment And I never want to be the person who's afraid or reticent to beg my God for peace, justice, and love in this world. Thanks, man. That was uh, probably one of the most moving expressions ever. But um, So you mentioned earlier about the God gene and how it kind of is like walking around on a low dose of mushrooms and so um a lot of people uh with like connection with like yoga things like yoga or different things find uh other ways aside from christianity to try to mm-hmm. get in contact with god and a lot of their experiences are like on shrooms or ayahuasca um that they have like these transcendent experiences so i guess in my mind i was thinking about other various cultures uh in western culture and we might look at these things as like primitive or like them as underdeveloped countries and this broad generalization um, in their interactions with God and the divine. Um, but is there any correlation that you know about the natural substances is helping people connect uh, to the divine hmm. and spirit through these things or val- validity and how it relates to like neurotheology? Yes. Great question. Uh, someone asked me earlier, like, what's the question you get the most? And I forgot. That's the question I get the most today. 
like ayahuasca, psilocybin, LSD, God. Um, which is tough for a Southern Baptist who went through D.A.R.E. <laughs> right? Drug abuse resistance education. I remember this plexiglass handout with actual drugs in it, and I was scandalized at the immorality of the police because what if that plexiglass broke and a child got a hold of drugs? They would instantly be an addict, their future's doomed if they so much as touched a leaf of that cursed marijuana plant. <laughs> and now Denver's like, just in, right? So, so one thing, the science is really clear on some substances, like opioids, and all the propaganda we heard has great scientific merit. Heroin's terrible for you. Don't do meth. I saw this amazing, I don't know how they got clearance to make this, or cocaine. I saw this TV show, I think on an airplane. It's the only time I watch TV. That showed people taking different drugs and what the effects were on them. They had to like do like cognitive tasks and then like carry a washing machine up a ramp. It was real weird. But they would do it like without the drug and then with the drug. And like, um, like the cocaine people felt like they were doing great but weren't at the cognitive. And then but like literally had an improvement in their ability to move. Like I, I, the weight, I really think it was a washing machine. Um, and then like they literally had someone like heroin and like he didn't even finish the test. You know what I mean? And then the meth guy like... I can't believe he said the meth guy. <laughs> the meth guy was like huge penalty cognitive and then was like weaker and like couldn't successfully, he tried, but like literally his physical life was so diminished. So like they were talking about how meth makes you feel terrible and reduce your mental and physical performance. I'm like, that's a great sales, like where does this, I'm serious, how's that habit forming? Anyway, so. What I've seen more recently, um, studies they didn't show me in D.A.R.E., are that psychedelics don't necessarily belong in the same structure as heroin and cocaine and meth. That the consequences to health are not as clear-cut, the habit-forming tendencies seem to be dramatically overstated, um, and like I've seen some studies on psilocybin, that it creates a hyper-connected state in the brain. Um, one dose can help uh, treat depression for like 14 months. I mean, that's, that's pretty powerful stuff. It's real taboo in America to talk about that right now. It's not as taboo to talk about marijuana. And like I think if alcohol is legal, marijuana should definitely be legal like alcohol and cigarettes the science is pretty clear these are more dangerous things now also don't fall for the green lobby smoking marijuana is not harmless inhaling smoke things that are burning anything a stick outside is terrible for your lungs 
Okay? So let's just put that on the record. Smoke bad. So. But specifically, one interesting thing about psilocybin, LSD, and DMT is the way they create um, activity in the brain remarkably similar to what happened to me on the beach, which for the record, I wasn't dosing anything but life, okay? Um, And I don't think the usages of those substances in other cultures is primitive because they were tied to experience with guides in a social context, typically a coming of age or a life transition. And these were ways that people explored themselves and their community. And I think in that way, those can be beautiful life-expanding substances. I think treating them like a tourist event or a fun party exhibit is dangerous and habit-forming. And let's be clear, today in the United States, a misdemeanor or a felony. That can't be avoided. I have a feeling maybe drug enforcement is going to be different in the next few months. So, you know, (laughs) we're in North Carolina. Be careful. Um, But yeah, those things have gotten like, so far what I'm reading it seems like the 80s statements about those substances was way overblown. I literally thought, because I was shown research in school, that LSD burned holes in your brain, right? Like, I was like, oh my gosh, don't do LSD. Every time you take a dose, it burns a hole in your brain. Now, there's like no peer-reviewed research to back that up. But again, the thing that worries me is, is it touristy or are you... Some things are good because you work for them. You can't tell because of this cardigan, but my biceps are an inch and three-quarter larger around than they were seven weeks ago because I have been working out. And at first, I felt this weird dimorphism, like whose body is this? Because I noticed like, my muscles would start to grow and they'd be firmer. And instead of being like, I'm getting jacked, I'd be like, something's taking over my body. (laughs) I woke up in somebody else's body. I'm supposed to have skinny arms and a pear torso, and that's just who I am as a person. But like I'm starting to like like being able to pick up my luggage and put it in the car. (laughs) That's amazing. Or like watch this. I'll sit in a chair, internet, I'm sitting in a chair, and then I stand up, no hesitation, no groan, like I'm not a little bit winded. That was literally true. I did a fitness assessment. How many push-ups can you do? And I, the app was terrible because the lowest it would answer it would take was one, and I could do zero push-ups. So I had to lie on my assessment <laughs> because it didn't let you put in zero. I did 40 push-ups yesterday. Do you know like how, like I felt amazing. I puked, <laughs> but <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I made it to the sink, it's okay, but like I puked in Sarasota and from doing push-ups, 
But I was like, I did 40 push-ups. <laughs> so if you can like take a pill and have what I had on the beach, I don't think you'll appreciate it as much as you will on the other side of two years of suffering and fear. I think as part of a search for the divine, these substances may have a role to play. I think as a substitute for a faith of exploration and study and community, it's just going to a rave. Well, you've done it. You've wasted a perfectly good couple of hours listening to Ask Science Mike live. Thanks, Internet. Uh, I want to thank Andrew Golucky for his work on pre-production of the show. I want to thank Greg Nordine for being my amazing producer and sound designer. I want to thank my patrons on Patreon for making sure I can pay my health insurance and, oh, by the way, do this show. And the fine people of Chapel Hill for one heck of a time tonight. Uh, if you'd like to see where I'll be in the future, go to AskScienceMike.com. But otherwise, it's been good talking to you, and I'll see you next week. Yeah.